the book of Proverbs. Let's open up to chapter 4. That's where we'll begin tonight. And let's start with some prayer. Lord, we need your help. We need you in every aspect of our lives. But principally tonight, our focus is upon relationships that are around us, those that we are able to influence. Some have already invested that influence, but for most of us, we're still in the process of investing into others' lives, principally children, at any age. And so we pray that you would help us do that correctly, in a way that pleases you and benefits them, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, training children is one of life's most rewarding experiences, but it certainly has its challenges, as everyone knows. What exactly are they learning? What are they walking away with? Do they have the story straight? Do they have the goods, you might say? There was a class of four-year-olds at a Sunday school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, It was Palm Sunday. The teacher said, Can anyone tell me what today is? Little girl raised her hand. Today's Palm Sunday. Right, oh, said the teacher. Who can tell me what next Sunday is? Same girl. Next Sunday's Easter Sunday. Teacher was pleased and said, Can anybody tell me why next Sunday is Easter Sunday? Same little girl shot her hand up. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday because Jesus Christ arose from the grave. And just before the teacher could congratulate her, the little girl went on, but if he sees a shadow, he has to go back in for seven weeks. (laughs) Now that story is cute if you're dealing with four-year-olds. If you're dealing with 40-year-olds or anyone older than that age group, it becomes more or less tragic than cute. We've discovered already in the last couple of weeks that the parent's role principally is to bring them up, bring up children in the training and in the admonition of the Lord, to train them to separate myth from reality, truth from error, right from wrong, to prepare them for the launch Prepare them to navigate through the dangerous waters of life. This past week, the Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney, was in our town. I was asked to do the invocation, but I was very, very interested in what he had to say. He said, every morning, he said, the President and I receive and read a security briefing, an intelligence report, These were his words, telling of the security threats accumulating against the United States of America. Interesting word. They are accumulating against America. He said there are 60 known countries, known countries, with terrorist networks poised against the United States. Now, when I heard those words, I immediately filtered it through this. I thought of parents. And I thought, you know, parents could use a good security briefing on the threats that are accumulating against their children. 
Researchers from John Hopkins University in Boston put out a report that said 30 years ago, the greatest fears of grade school children were, and they list the top five 30 years ago, greatest fears of grade school children 30 years ago. Number one, animals. Number two, being in a dark room. Three, high places. Four, strangers. Number five, loud noises. The same university said, today kids are afraid of the following. Here's the top five. Number one, divorce. Number two, nuclear war. Grade schoolers. Number three, cancer. Number four, pollution. And number five, being mugged. Those are the issues, in part, that are accumulating as threats against our children. We need to be aware of them. We need to act upon them. And as we've already discovered, it is the role of the parent to engage in a child's life both in precept and in practice. Telling them, teaching them, educating them, training them, and then reinforcing that by living that lifestyle before them. That's why we come to Proverbs tonight. We're only going to do this in one night, I trust, but the book of Proverbs is essentially what exactly do you teach your children? What, what kind of stuff specifically do you train them in? Because Proverbs is essentially the training of Solomon's children by Solomon about life. What are the most important things of life? And I've highlighted six of them. There are more, but these are the six big issues to teach children. But look at chapter 4. In the first verse, let's read down a few. Listen to how he puts it and the value in it. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father. Give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in your getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let her go. Keep her, for she is your life. You've got to understand that the imagery is set in this country of Israel that is filled with rocks. The paths have rocks on them. The hillsides are strewn with shelves of rock. And the idea is that a parent's influence can remove the things that would cause a child to stumble in life by the instruction, the training, the wisdom imparted by parents to children. So let's just jump right in and go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to highlight a few verses for you in this book. 
of what specifically to train to teach your children. Number one, teach them to love and respect God. That is first and foremost. Teach them to love and respect God. Chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. That's where successful parenting begins, by infusing within the mind, the heart of a child, a sense of the awesomeness of God and a sense of self in relationship to God. That's where it all begins. I have tried for several years now to teach my son the concept of another father. That is, there's going to be a day when I'm not going to be around. And I'm training him not just to obey me. My goal isn't that he just obeys me. Any, any firm discipline... Christian or secular can affect that. But I want him to understand that behind this father is another heavenly father. So that when he obeys me and his mother, when he does the right things, he's pleasing God. And the opposite is also true. When he disobeys me and does wrong, he is setting himself up against a holy God who sees everything, even when mom and dad are not around. The writer of Hebrews says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and they are open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you can get a child to realize that there is another parent who's always around. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. I know that's a term that many people stumble over. They think it means to be in, in dread of God. He's going to beat me up at any moment. You know, he is deity with a furrowed brow, ready to pounce on you, having a bad day every day. That's not what it means. The term, Yirat, Yahweh, means to have a, a reverential respect for God. It's the same term used of a child toward his or her parents in Leviticus. It says children are to revere, reverence, Yirat, their parents. And so what the fear of the Lord is, it's good not only for children, but for every one of us. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. It's relational. It's not based on duty or terror. If there's any terror in it, it's the, it's the dread terror that because I love God so much, I would do something that would displease Him. I'm afraid to do that. Because I love him. That's the fear of the Lord. And look over at chapter 3 in line with that. Just as there is another father behind this physical intermediary father, he is very active as a parent. Chapter 3, in verse 11, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. That goes along with loving and respecting God, the fear of the Lord. 
Teach your children that God is not mocked, that whatever a man or woman or child sows, that he will also reap. You teach them that. You teach them that stubbornness invites God's discipline. It will be done out of love, but it's going to be done. Listen to these words. I found them for you from Harry Emerson Fosdick, written years ago. He said, No horse gets anywhere until he's harnessed. No steam or gas ever drives anything until it is confined. No Niagara is ever turned into light and power until it is tunneled. No life ever grows great until it is focused, dedicated, and disciplined. And if you can teach your kids the fear of the Lord, you're going to spare them a lot of grief. And you're going to have them enjoy a satisfied life. For again, in Proverbs 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. One that goes along with that is Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. So you teach them that. First on the list, to love and respect God. A second vital lesson to teach children is to teach them to make good friends. Every parent will say amen to that one. Because every parent has been a little concerned about Well, a couple of them that seem to hang around, you worry about them. Well, Solomon is very frank with his son. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait and shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, the grave, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions, We will fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Peer pressure will become one of the most powerful forces in the life of any child. So the key is going to happen. The key is teach them to pick good peers. Train them how to select good friends. You can model that to them. Tell them to be careful who they hang out with because notice the plural in these verses. If sinners entice you, if they say, come with us, don't you go with them. In other words, the the picture is one person set against the pressure of a crowd. And that's a lot of pressure. You know, it's one thing to have pressure from within, that is, your own flesh is being tempted. Everybody has to deal with that. But it, it's worse when you have the personal temptation from within and a crowd, a gang, a group harassing you from without, trying to get you to do something that is wrong. That's why gangs have a real lure. Because it's tremendous peer pressure, number one, and it promises empowerment to the individual, number two. You'll become empowered if you join us. Recent television program interviewed a group of teenagers and they were asked, what do you see as the greatest problem today facing you as a teenager? Unequivocally, they all said, peer pressure. It's the group. It's the crowd. 
that produces values for us. So parents instruct your children what a good friend is, how to, how to choose one wisely. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son heeds his father's instruction. In verse 20, he continues the instruction. This is Proverbs 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. I don't know how often my dad said that in his own way. He said, you want to be a loser? Hang out with losers. Ah, dad, what do you know? You're just a dad. He knew. You want to be great? Hang out with great people. There's a species of alligator that, from, from the looks of it, you think this thing's awfully lazy, but it's just very patient. It doesn't go out and hunt. It sits, and it opens its mouth wide, not budging a millimeter, I'm told. It looks like it's dead. It just hangs out, mouth open, not a movement, shallow breathing. So the moisture of the tongue invites things like Insects, flies, they start buzzing around the moist tongue, the smelly mouth. And those little insects invite larger prey, like frogs who like flies and lizards who like the other insects. And so more and more creatures hang out for the party on the tongue. And all the while, that seemingly dead alligator just is motionless until suddenly and instantly... There's that huge earthquake. Wham! Jaw comes down. Party over. Meal is had. Swallow. We all know that that's true in life. We've all hung out with the crowd only to get bitten. And we know from experience, those of us who are parents, that Satan is a very patient and wise enemy. So... You need to train children how to select good friends because if you don't teach them how to select wisely, there's going to be a whole lot of other people out there that are going to select your kids if they're not doing the selecting. Third thing is to teach them how to control their sexuality. And if you've read Proverbs before, you know that Solomon deals head-on with this issue in this book. Throughout the whole book, but principally chapter 5, 6, and 7, is dad having the talk with his boy. Sex education, Solomon style, to his son. And he tells him everything he needs to know. We need to tell him that. If we as parents don't teach them that, they're going to learn it. And I've had parents say, no, no, we don't discuss any of that until they're about to be married. Listen, they've learned it when they're that tall because they've been with people. They've seen billboards. They've heard songs. They've seen television programs. They've gone to movies. The Media Research Center tells us that incidences of sex outside of marriage during the first one hour of primetime television occur eight times more often than depictions of sex within the marriage bounds. Another study says that teens hear or watch sexual activity on television two to three times per hour. If they watch four to five hours a day of television, which tragically is the average, that is over 1,500 acts 
or inferences of acts of sexual activity, most of them outside of marriage, in one year. Now, what does that do? What does that bombardment cause to happen? It does two things. It normalizes the bad activity and legitimizes the bad activity. In other words, they not only see it as something everybody is doing, they see it as perfectly okay. It's not just normal, it's fine. Because that message is reinforced. So you take the time for honest, honest discussion. And let me add, listening. Listen to them talk about temptations. Don't, don't just jump in and go, well, you shouldn't think that. You shouldn't feel that. Listen and discuss honestly with them. Listen to this. This is tragic. A survey shows that less than 5% of today's Christian parents are actually giving their children honest, loving, and thorough sexual guidance at home. That's an F on the report card for us parents. 5% or less are actually giving that thorough, honest advice on this topic. Look over at chapter 5. Listen to this guy. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. I'm sure his son was all ears. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion, that your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, How I have hated instruction. And my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who have instructed me. In chapter 6, he paints the picture of a seduction scene about how it goes, how it works, what to look for when you're out and about, what you're going to hear, what you're going to see. And in chapter 6, verse 25, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? In other words, this activity will ruin you faster than anything else. My son, my children, listen carefully. It'll take your life. It'll reduce your life to a crust of bread. Solomon's dad had that happen to him. It'll ruin you physically. Sexually transmitted diseases. It can ruin you emotionally. All the guilt, the anxiety that comes with it. And it can ruin you spiritually. How can it ruin you spiritually? Well, it'll take your peace with God away. All of that guilt heaped up, that issue of sin 
drives a wedge so that you lose your fellowship with God. And quite frankly, it can be even worse because if there's a lifestyle of this in an unrepentant manner, it just proves you're not his child. And Paul said very frankly these words, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's powerful language. And Solomon is saying the same thing. My son, that boyfriend, that girlfriend can love you all the way to hell. So you be careful in this area. Now just a note to those of you who aren't parents. You're dating. You're single. You're thinking, this doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not raising children. This has absolutely everything to do with you. Because your sexual values now will influence the kids you'll have one day. They're going to find out. They'll know. They're going to ask, Dad, Mom, how far should we go in this dating relationship? By the way, how far did you go, Dad, Mom? How pure were you? So you are laying the foundation right now if you're a single person that will pay dividends or deficits in the future. Number four, teach your children how to handle money. Soon, all children discover the power of money. And when it dawns on them, they want yours <laughs> as, as much as they can get now. One of my staff pastors said, what, do I have ATM written across my forehead? And your kids aren't necessarily going to understand things like, well, we can't afford that right now. They may not understand that because after all, so-and-so down the street can afford that. Why can't you? And this is an era of instant gratification. Hey, there's credit cards. Put it on credit. Don't, don't, don't get them into that temptation. That can destroy someone. Teach them how to handle money. And you start with the Lord. Proverbs 3 verse 9 tells us plainly, Honor the Lord with your possessions. And with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In other words, teach your children, if you're generous with God, God's going to be generous with you. Teach them the joy of investing in spiritual things in the kingdom of God. In working hard, in saving money. In being generous to those who don't have. Caution them about debt. You might want, want to write down Proverbs 22, verse 7, where it says, The borrower is the slave or servant to the lender. You may want to go over Proverbs chapter 6, which talks about the dangers of co-signing for a friend or a stranger in a get-rich scheme, and that won't pay off. Teach them of giving money to the underprivileged who can't afford to make money. Proverbs 22.9, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives his bread to the poor. In line with that, teach them the dangers of materialism, not to be consumed with stuff. Proverbs 23.4, Don't overwork to be rich. And it talks in that chapter about contentment. 
Now, that begins with the allowance. Teach them how to budget with an allowance. You say, what, budget a dollar? Absolutely. Teach them how to plan with that dollar. Show them how a portion is to be given to the Lord. A portion is to be saved. A portion is to be used for yourself. I have a friend who started that with his child ever since uh, both of them were very, very young. Taught them them how to budget in those three ways from the smallest allowance upward. It will pay off in life. Number five, teach them to work hard. This goes right along with handling money, doesn't it? Because it's not until you work hard for money that you understand the value of it. When you get money the old-fashioned way, you earn it, as the commercial says, rather than just ATM, ATM, ATM over your parents' head. When you learn the value of hard work, life takes on a wonderful kind of meaning, especially if the satisfaction can be inward. I did this job well, and I did it for the Lord. Look at Proverbs 6. I just want you to see how inspired this man is as he speaks to his children. Verse 6. And and again, chapter 6, verse 1. My son, it begins. Look at verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. I wonder if he just woke his son up out of bed one morning with that. (laughs) Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer, gathers her food for the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And so your poverty will come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Hey, son, go watch the ants today. You know, ants are cool because they don't appear to work when somebody's watching. You know, they're not kicking back like this until a human walks up to the ant hole and they go, quick, there's a human watching. Get to work. <laughs> they are working because they are preparing for their future, the winter. Their labor now is based upon what is going to come down the road. And if we can infuse that great work ethic within children, that kind of preparation to anticipate, it'll pay off. In other words, don't just work hard when I'm watching, when mom's watching, when the boss is watching, because God's always watching. That's the fear of the Lord part. Proverbs 10, verse 4 and 5, I'll just read it to you. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. My father taught his four boys how to work hard and to do it really well. Because if it wasn't done well, do it again. You ought to do that to the best of your ability, not just barely do it, do it well. According to the Almanac of the American people, Americans spend 32% of the workday goofing off. That's a third of a day of work goofing off. Knowing that, one business put up a sign on the bulletin board that read, Would you like to find out what it's like to be a member of a minority group? Try putting in an honest day's work occasionally. You may want to think about that on your own. 
How much time in a work day when somebody else is paying our paycheck are we really working or just slacking off? God will reward the diligent. And bosses, I find, usually do that as well. Number six, and finally, this is another mega theme of Proverbs. Teach them to speak well or to use their speech correctly. I discovered that terms like lips, mouth, tongue, word, or words are used in this book about 150 times. It is one of the mega themes of the book of Proverbs, a father teaching children what not to say as well as what to say. And one of the undergirding themes in that theme is Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words are powerful. There's an old Japanese proverb that says, The tongue is but three inches long and can kill a man six feet high. Now, before you slough this off and go, Well, you know, that's, that's a good thing to teach kids, but it's not really huge in God's eyes, is it? Before you get a yes or no on that, just read chapter 6 for just a moment. Verse 16. These six things the Lord, what? Hates. Okay, now you have God's hate list. That'd be an interesting one to find out. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Number one, a proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. I counted them. Of the seven things God hates, three of them have to do with your speech. God hates these things. They're big. It's an issue. It's not secondary. It's primary. But just as the Lord hates that, the Lord would love obedient, gracious, godly, pleasant speech. Like it says in Proverbs 25, words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. The Lord delights in that. Back in chapter 4 of Proverbs, along with that same thing, and this is the last text we're going to look at together. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Verse 24, let's go down there for time. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Don't let them get away with perversity. Don't let them see you get away with perversity. That's where it starts, doesn't it? Teach them the value also of encouragement. Encouragement. Proverbs 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous, listen to this, is a well of life. In the Middle East, a well was a symbol of refreshment. Proverbs 15, 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. There it is again. Refreshment going out and blessing others. And that's why, once again, it all begins with mom and dad. I was on America Online this week, and they have these little features. And one of the features was parenting. So I thought, oh, i got to look at that. 
And CBS interviewed a guy named Sal Severe who wrote a book for parents on raising preschoolers. The name of the book, he called it, is How to Behave So Your Preschoolers Will Too. Isn't that a great title? How Parents Should Behave So Their Preschoolers Will Too. And in the interview, he said that at that age, language development is huge. Word usage is the big issue for preschoolers. So parents need to teach children to express themselves in words rather than in deeds, like hitting, stealing, pouncing, tearing, biting, those kinds of activities. Teach them to say it. He said also, you need to teach your children very specifically what is wrong and what is right. And when they do something wrong, specifically call them on it. And when they do something right, praise them with words of encouragement. It says the same thing Proverbs says. I want to close with this, speaking of a dad or a mom encouraging a child. This little girl writes, My dad says, I am enormously gorgeous. I wonder if I really am. To be enormously gorgeous, Sarah says, you need to have beautiful, long, curly hair like she has. I don't. To be enormously gorgeous, Justin says, you must have perfectly straight white teeth like he has. I don't. To be enormously gorgeous, Jessica says, you can't have any of those little brown dots on your face called freckles. I do. To be enormously gorgeous, Mark says, you have to be the smartest kid in the seventh grade class, and I'm not. To be enormously gorgeous, Stephen says, you have to be able to tell the funniest jokes in the school. I don't. To be enormously gorgeous, Lauren says, you need to live in the nicest neighborhood in town in the prettiest house. I don't. To be enormously gorgeous, Matthew says, you can only wear the coolest clothes and the most popular shoes. I don't. To be enormously gorgeous, Samantha says, you need to come from a perfect family. I don't. But every night at bedtime, my dad gives me a hug and says, You are enormously gorgeous, and I love you. So, my dad must know something my friends don't. <laughs> yes, teach your children well. These things encourage them with the love of God, and they'll be secure. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have you as our role model. And we are grateful that the book of Proverbs gives parents an actual template of a parent teaching a son and then all of his children these basic vital necessities of life, how to live well. Good practical wisdom for living a well-balanced Life And it all begins with the fear of the Lord, a love and respect for you. Lord, I pray that we would model that by the things we choose as moms and dads, by the goals we set, by the standards we allow and enforce, that our love for you would be magnetic, drawing those children to your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.